1: The History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, if you joined us earlier this week
0: for part one of this two part episode with Sandy Schreier, an introduction is not necessary. <laughs> if you are a museum professional who works with fashion and textiles, an introduction is not necessary. If you are a fashion or textile appraiser or couture collector, an introduction is not necessary. And if you are a dealer of exceptionally high-end vintage, also, an introduction is probably not necessary to today's guest, as she is one of the foremost collectors of fashion in the entire world.
1: Yes. So please wrap your brain around this fact, friends. Our guest today, Sandy Schreier, began amassing her personal collection to full decades before the Costume Institute was even made an official department at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And that was in 1959. Now 15,000 pieces strong, the collection includes rare and precious examples of works by Poiret, Lombard, Fortuny, all of the fashion history greats all the way up to more contemporary works by Isaac Mesrahi and past-dressed guest Norma Kamali. I mean, April, is there anything her collection does not have? I don't think so. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you asked that
0: because this is actually something that I asked her, and perhaps I'm going to save that little tidbit as a fun surprise for the end of the episode. In the meantime, let's
1: welcome Sandy back for part two. Sandy, a warm welcome.
0: I want to ask you about... The nature of collecting, like in the 1960s and the 1970s, when a lot of museums hadn't quite made that leap into collecting fashion and textiles, what was that like? Where were you finding things? And I'm sure you have legions of stories, incredible stories about some of your finds. I want to hear them all, and 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 I'm sure our listeners
2: do as well. Well, I think that I've been very fortunate because articles start appearing about me in newspapers all over. And even though I never talked about collecting in Detroit, there were these auto wives and their children and their grandchildren that knew about me and they were turning over. And I mean, nobody knew that these things had any value. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been giving them to me. But I got so frustrated at a point that in the 60s, I took out an ad in the Gross Point neighborhood newspaper. And it ran, I think, twice a week for about a year. And it said, wanted vintage designer clothes. And I would say from one, and I don't remember exactly what I said in the ad, but I said think I said from 1900, through the present and must have a label. And I had my phone number. In that entire year, I got one call only. <laughs> and the woman said, Today is your lucky day. And my heart beat so fast I thought it would jump out of my chest. And I said, what do you have? And she said, I have a pair of Gloria vanderbilt jeans (laughs) and so i mean twice a week for a year and that's what i got out of it a pair of Gloria vanderbilt jeans but my collecting stories are really funny but most of them are sad because most of them wind up that i had a lot of tea and cookies with a lot of old ladies That As I said that, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm one of those old ladies now. But I mean, I had tan cookies because they were most, all of them were widows. And they were so excited that they were going to share their life with me. And I would go there and it got to the point, April, where I kind of dreaded going because I knew I wouldn't get in and out in a half hour or an hour that they would almost cry when I went to leave because they were so happy that I was there. And they really wanted somebody to listen to their stories and listen to their life and share an afternoon. And they would, they would bake cake before I came, they would bake cookies and they would have a pot of tea. And it was really, I'd say the first six times were wonderful. After that, it became really, really a drag. And what was a bigger drag was that in 99% of the time, they had nothing to show me. They had a lot to show me, but none of it was couture and none of it was collectible at all.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe this is asking you to give away a secret that you don't want to give. But, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s specifically, kind of, you were still actively collecting. so. What were some of your sources if these other avenues weren't necessarily panning out?
2: You know what? I would go to house sales. I would go to, there weren't flea markets in those days. They didn't call them flea markets, but in essence, they were flea markets, but they were only on the weekend. And because I'm in Michigan, they were only during the summer and they were outside. And a lot of them were only once a month, one weekend out of a month. There were things like books and tractors and rakes and tools and everything that people didn't want. And you see everything from a beautiful piece of art class by Lalique down to a broken crib from a baby. I mean, you know, a million things and it would be in a really Really big field, and you'd have to walk around in this big field. Anyway, and the closest one to our house was about a two hour drive away. And I would get in the car and I'd race there, and it got to the point where I found nothing, nothing, nothing every time I would go. And it would be two hours each way of driving and a lot of walking around and walking, walking, walking through all these fields of mud and gunk, and finding nothing. And it got to a point where I decided I'm not going anymore. And that Sunday morning, I slept in. And we at that time had answering machines, which I don't know if you remember what an answering machine is. I do. And the light was blinking and my husband came downstairs. And he said, Sandy, there's a message for you on the machine. And I went running down, and it, this was about nine o'clock, and I was usually up by seven. And when you, had, when you went out to this kind of flea market two hours away, you had to get there at seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And so I wasn't going that Sunday. And I listened to the message, and it's a girl calling me saying, Sandy, there is something that I think you'll like. It's under a table in a great big basket full of rags. And it has a label on it. And I don't know how to pronounce it, but the name on the label is P-O-I-R-E-T. Oh, no. So I, in my pajamas, I jumped in the car and I got there. I raced. I mean, it's amazing. I wasn't killed. I raced there and that parade became mine. <laughs> and, you know, and... Um, It's now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Which one is it? It's a two-piece ensemble that's pink, and it's a day dress from the 1920s, and it's incredible. It's just beautiful.
0: Our regular listeners will know that Pare is one of Cass and I's all-time favorites, so that's awesome.
2: And and it was in pristine condition, April. I mean, it was in a basket with rags. I mean, that's how much people, you know. But what I've done personally, I think, is because of all the articles about me and because of all the interviews and the podcast, et cetera, et cetera, I think that I have created, I've helped to create this big market. And I've helped to educate a lot of people who otherwise, would not have known anything about this art form. Yeah. And therefore, what happens now if I get, if I get a phone call saying, is this Sandy Schreier the collector? And I say, Yes. And they say, Do I have something great for you? And they tell me what it is, and I'll say, Well, and how much do you want for it? And it could be, I have a Calvin Klein for you. And I say, oh, well, how much do you want? Because I always ask that, even if I'm not interested. And they say, "Uh, how about (laughs) $5,000? Because everyone thinks that what they have is so rare and incredible that their piece is going to wind up at the Met as well.
0: Right. I am actually a a certified art appraiser and we sometimes talk about like intrinsic value versus emotional value in the field of appraising because people get very attached to their objects and because they sometimes people that are are wanting things appraised because it means something when their family, you know, it's very sentimental. So it's more sentimental value, not emotional value.
2: But that is a big problem going to people's homes for me as well. Mm-hmm. because if I go to somebody's house and they would take out something and they would say, this rare, incredible piece belonged to my grandmother who I loved and adored. In April, it could be the worst thing you've ever seen in your life and it's ugly and it's in tatters and it's very bad condition and it's not designer and it's just awful, but it means so much to the person who owns it. And, and how can I say, I don't want that, it's a rag. right? But what I have to do is I have to be very diplomatic. And I learned how to do that early on. I've got some great experiences too. There was a woman who was my neighbor and she said, I have a relative who moved here with her very wealthy husband. And she's from Argentina, and he found her in Argentina. And he is a, an American millionaire. He found her, and they moved here. And she has an enormous collection of couture, quote unquote. Everyone says they have couture. I'd say 99% of the people that tell me they have couture really don't know what couture is, and they don't understand what the word means. So I went running to this house, so excited. I couldn't believe it. And the woman's husband had died. And she was very sad. But she took out to show me about at least two to three dozen flamenco dresses. Because she was a flamenco dancer when he met her. And she had couture flamenco gowns. made. Because she was one of the biggest flamenco dancers in Argentina during that time. And I looked at them and I kept saying, oh, they're so beautiful. I wouldn't think of taking them from you. And she made tea and cookies. And while I was having my tea and cookies, she said, how would you like seeing my scrapbook? And I thought she, because I knew that she was a famous flamenco dancer, I thought it was going to be a scrapbook of her career. And she said, my husband took these pictures of me during our entire marriage every year on my birthday. And she opened her scrapbook and every picture was of her every year on her birthday, nude.
0: I knew this was coming. I knew this was coming. I knew you were going to say that.
2: (laughs) I had never seen. I mean, in those days, years ago. I mean, I don't know, April. Have you ever seen your mother without her clothes on?
0: I mean, not recently. As a kid,
2: yeah. Yeah, as a kid, yes. But I mean, I don't remember seeing my mother without her clothes on in her older years at all. So I had never seen what an older woman looked like. And I looked at those pictures and I thought, Is she crazy? I mean, I would take those and flush those down the toilet. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my God, when she got past 65 or 70, I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And I think that I, I think she was in her late 80s or early 90s when I went to see her. So I saw it all, April.
0: She needed you to know. She needed
2: you to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, and I, I mean, there's a million stories like that and even better. The fun stories are really a very small part of the chases. The chases went on and on and on. And to be honest with you, I don't go chasing any longer. People in the last 25 years, I'd say, because of my press, Because of appearing on TV, even though, I mean, all of my TV appearances, most of them, uh, not my appearances on Oprah, but my appearances on the One O'Clock movie, which is a show that I was on all the time, AMC, with Nick Clooney, George Clooney's father was the host Mm of my show on AMC. And all of that, they were all related to Hollywood costuming and not to couture. My favorite story about appearing on a show was I got a call, the station got a call from a woman who wanted to talk to me. And I said, go ahead, give her my number. And she called and she said she was 99 years old. She was visiting her son in the Midwest and she turned on the TV and she saw me on the one o'clock movie. And she said, I know that you must really be, she didn't know anything about me as a collector, but she said, I enjoyed your segment so much. I loved you talking about the Hollywood movies. I have a gift for you. She said, I used to be a lace dealer. Until the age of 90, I was a lace dealer in San Francisco. And one day I was in someone's attic going through all the laces that they had, like lace tablecloths and lace doilies and handkerchiefs. And I came across this beautiful, beautiful coat. And it has a label. And the label says, For Tinny. And I said, Oh, sounds interesting. I tried to be very coy about the whole thing. And she said, Dear. I love you on the one o'clock movie. If you give me your address, I'd like to send it to you as a gift. And that gift was in my exhibition at the Met. It's one of the best Fortunicos ever, ever, ever. I
0: have to say, like when, because the Fortunis in the exhibition at the Costume Institute, they were kind of against the back wall. So you kind of came in and then you had to round a corner before you could see them all. And they were just all in a row. It was amazing. And I literally gasped. I went, oh! And the, the woman next to me and I just looked at each other and we were both like, for duty. <laughs> It was pretty amazing. Um, so I want to talk about this. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the myriad of exhibitions that have been of your clothes. And, and of course, you know, at some point, Museum curators started coming to you for your expertise and your connoisseurship. I'm sure this was incredibly rewarding when this, when this first started happening. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the museums that you've loaned to, if, you, if you're allowed to? And also, like, h- how accessible do you currently make your collection to outside requests?
2: My collection has always been available to fine arts museums only. I had requests from department stores, opening of grocery stores, the Kentucky Derby (laughs) requested my hat collection. Uh, You know, so I've had all kinds of requests, but I only loan to fine arts museums because, as I said, And I've repeated myself too many times on your show that I collect fashion as an art form. And as people have asked, do I wear my collection? And I always answer and say, if I owned a Picasso, it would not be on my back. And that's the reason why I don't wear my things. And it's also the reason why I don't loan things to department stores and to shopping malls and to the Kentucky Derby. They don't have the right conditions to take care of the things properly. They don't have the right staff. They don't have the right knowledge and education to take care of them. And because these things are valuable, and I want future generations to enjoy them To be able to look and see what Mariano Fortuny designed, what Yves Saint Laurent designed, I feel that I have a responsibility and my responsibility is to the world of art and to the world of fashion. And that I was put here to temporarily be the caregiver of these objects to take care of them in the best way that I can until I can't take care of them any longer. And that's when I thought, I don't want to get down or morbid, but I want to be honest with you, April. My husband gave me a fantasy life and I thought that the two of us were still teenagers and we would live together forever together and that life would just go on and on and on. And thank goodness that he was a realist and he uh, was down to earth and that he knew that that wasn't going to happen. And to give you a little story about that, that when these plans for the exhibition at the Met came to being, which was in 2012, we were at a meeting with the lawyers at the Met, and uh, my husband said, when do you think this exhibition will happen? And they said, probably in 2019 or 2020. And my husband, without hesitating, one moment said, well, Sandy will be there, but I won't be. And they looked at him, and Harold old Coda, who was then the head of the Costume Institute, said, Sherwin, is there something the matter with you? And he said, no, I'm being a realist. He said, I'm feeling fine and wonderful, but my parents both died in their early 50s. And it's all in the genes. And the chances for me being around in 2019 and 2020 don't look as good as Sandy's chances because her family lives to 105. And sadly enough, that's exactly what happened. And so I feel, I, I started to feel, once my husband passed away, my fantasy life came to a very big end. And I, it brought me down to reality with a big crash that I had to learn how to do, I had to learn how to take care of myself. And I didn't have somebody who was giving me that fantasy any longer. And the reality was that I wanted to make these decisions and not leave it up to my four children and my seven grandchildren to make after I'm gone. And then I thought, so many people give wonderful gifts after they're gone. In their memory, the children give it to museums. But I thought, nuts to that. I want to enjoy it. I want to have a party. I want to see the exhibition. And that's when I decided I'm doing it in my lifetime. I'm, you know, it wasn't that I couldn't continue taking care of these objects. I felt that there was a time and place for everything and the time was now. And the time was for me, to, since I have all my faculties, thank goodness, and I'm knocking wood, that I can make the decisions of who gets what and where things are going. And I, very often, Andrew Bolton asked me if I have second thoughts. I have a few. They're not second thoughts exactly, but there are days that I think to myself, oh my goodness, I really love that Fortuny or I love that Galenga or, you know, uh, I love that Dior so much. I wish that it was just still at my fingertips so I could go to my storage facility, pull it out and take a look at it. And then I think to myself, did I ever do that in my lifetime? No. When the Met was here and it took two years for them to go through the procedure of examining everything, measuring everything, and deciding what pieces they actually were going to use in the exhibition. When they would open boxes, some of them had been in storage for as much as 40, 50 years. And I mean, and when they opened the box, I would swoon and go, oh my God, it's so much more beautiful than I remembered. It was like visiting old friends again. It was wonderful.
0: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic,
1: Polish, and so many more... For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. Or how is the collection organized and indexed in those moments where you did need to find something specific?
2: Okay. In the late 1980s, I decided at that point in time, I was getting requests for so many TV shows and publishers were coming to me asking me uh, to write books. And there was the collecting aspect and I decided that I needed an assistant and I got a wonderful wonderful assistant by the name of Suzanne Hines, who had taken costume and textile in school, and she was looking for a part-time job. And uh, the negative was that she lives in Hamburg, Michigan, which is a good hour and a half drive from me. So she would drive three hours a day in order to work for me for four hours. So, I mean, you know, three times a week. At that time, I was so busy that Suzanne actually was here some weeks at four and five times a week. And so she worked for me for, I believe it was 29 years. Wow. And so we learned together. And at that point, starting in the late 80s, we developed systems. And we developed systems of keeping records and files and having record shots of photographs from all. I had dress forms and we did it very professionally. And we did things that she had learned in school and we put that together with things I had learned from being around the museum world for the Previous 25 years or so. Mm -hmm. And we put that all together and we had a system. And it was really a good working system. At the point that I started talking with Harold and uh, the late Richard Martin about doing an exhibition at the Met, Harold started to say to me, You really have to start to do PDFs because, of course, In the 80s, in the 1980s, there wasn't, you know, there weren't computers and systems that I could have done. But at that point, Harold insisted. And I started, he he showed me and set up a PDF for me. And I really stuck to it. But in kind of a, not a haphazard fashion, but I was better than most people would be, but I wasn't good enough. But I really became really terrific at it and got everything totally organized after my husband passed away because it gave me something to do. It gave me purpose for living. Mm -hmm. And I was very sad and very depressed, but I worked at least 20 hours a day, seven days a week on organizing the collection.
0: Yeah, and 15,000 pieces, this is no small feat.
2: Yeah, right. So it is completely organized. Nice. (laughs) It's not like, I mean, I've heard, you know, stories about curators going into homes and seeing boxes piled to the ceiling with haphazard things thrown in the boxes and, you know, and, and no lists and no files and no shots and no nothing. That isn't what the Met encountered with me.
0: I have not asked you this because I'm sure this is one of the most common questions that you get asked, but in those 15,000 pieces,
2: which is your favorite
0: or more kind of what I would ask is, do you have any pieces that are especially significant to you?
2: You know, my answer to which is your favorite, because that's a question every reporter (laughs) asks, I said, you know, I had four children in five years. And every day, people would say, do you have a favorite? And I would say, it depends on the day. And the same thing would happen with the collection. My memory of some of these pieces made some of them seem a lot more glorious than they were and others that I've learned about in the last 30 years that I hadn't seen for a long time when I took out of the box, one lawn van in particular blew me away. And 30 years ago, I didn't know enough to appreciate it as much as I would now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so it's education and knowledge that has changed my likes and, and there's no dislikes because the things that I disliked, I made mistakes along the way. There was a friend of mine in Montreal called and said one of the wealthiest women in Montreal who always went to the couture had died. And and her whole couture collection was in the house. And I said, you know, I tried to say what was it exactly? Because from Detroit to Montreal isn't exactly like going from Detroit to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so I got on a plane and I went just on a whim and what I encountered was unbelievable, but I turned down probably 99% of what I saw because it was either missing a button or had a small little tear in it or a discoloration mark or a food spill, and those were all pieces because I remember exactly what they looked like. The ones that were left behind were from the greatest time in the couture, which was in the twenties and thirties, and I left behind Chanel's and et etc. And because I thought it was missing a button, that button can never be replaced. But I was very young and innocent then, and so and the long band that I just mentioned came from that basement, which by the way, had been flooded with water and a lot of the pieces were wet. But I mean, you know, had I have taken most of them, they could have easily uh, been restored.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, you've mentioned that you have grown along these decades of collecting and so has our field, really. How would you characterize the change that you've seen over like the last 60 or 70 years when it comes to the study of fashion history or fashion studies?
2: Well, the first time I spoke at FIT, and it was a senior class, they all gave me a standing ovation. Now, I'm used to standing ovations when I do speaking engagements, which I do all over the country. And I do them for very big audiences for benefits like, you know, the Cancer Foundation, uh, Project Hope, et cetera, et cetera, for organizations, because I'm entertaining and I like to think of myself as being Bette Midler number two.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You guys have been friends for 40 years, which some of our listeners might not know. (laughs)
2: I'm funny, I'm humorous, I'm entertaining, I tell funny stories. And so, I mean, you know, so the show is a very good show. And I have all these people who think that I'm very entertaining and they give me standing ovations. But to have the seniors at FIT stand up and give me a standing ovation blew me away. And I stood there on the stage and I burst out crying. And I said, it's not, they, a few of the students said, we're jealous of your life. And I said, don't be jealous of me. I'm jealous of you. You have had an education in this field. I have had to learn it. It's taken me a whole lifetime to learn what you've just learned in a few years. And so... That's the big difference that there are for people that can afford to send their children from Washington or from uh, Cedar Falls, Iowa, to Parsons or FIT or to FITM in, in California. That have enough money to do that. That's great. But there's also fashion schools or retailing classes In all the universities now, or in most of them, so that I think that if there is somebody with an extraordinary amount of talent in this field, they don't have to go through what I've had to go through in order to get to where you can say, I made it, I'm a success.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, from the very beginning of this podcast, which we're now on our fourth year, we have always... vision dress as a public history platform. And we wanted to share our passion for this with a wider audience, you know, outside of traditional academia to study not only the phenomenon of fashion, but also what fashion and dress reveal about our shared humanity. That's why we started this show And I think that's going to exactly what you were saying just now, too, as well in terms of like the public access in in education. Um, And we're trying to turn that dial to just making it available on a click of your phone. Sandy, this has been a true delight and a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. And we want to hear more of what you're up to soon. So please come back and join us again anytime you want to chat further.
2: I would love to. And April, are you going to stay for tea and cookies? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Sandy, please make that tea and cookies for three because I would so love to join as well. And of course, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm sure our listeners love learning a bit more about your wonderful collection just as much as we have.
0: And we would also be super remiss not to mention that you can indeed learn more about Sandy's collection. There is an exhibition catalog for the show that was held at the Costume Institute, which we mentioned earlier. The show and the catalog are called In Pursuit of Fashion, the Sandy Schreier Collection, and it features pieces which are part of this 160 plus piece donation that she made to the Costume Institute's collection the show itself closed in 2020, but you can still, of course, snag a copy of the catalog online. Sandy, I just want to say again, a huge thank you, and please do join us again sometime. I, for one, want to hear lots more stories about all of these great finds and how they were acquired.
1: And what about those items that she has not yet found, April, that you mentioned earlier? Ah, yes. So I did ask her if there were
0: any Holy Grail items that she hadn't yet been able to acquire or find. And she said that she's still on the hunt for some of John Galliano's more spectacular couture pieces. She does already have Galliano in the collection, she said, but she realized after seeing the Dior exhibition in Paris a few years ago, that she really wanted to have some of those, you know, super avant-garde, over-the-top pieces. So, dress listeners, you heard it here. If you know of any of these Galliano masterpieces available out there somewhere, Sandy's in the market. Oh, and Cass, one more thing. I meant to ask her, which I actually forgot to ask her. I wonder if she has any of Scaparelli's newspaper print pieces
1: because those are on my Holy Grail list. What's on your list? Oh, man, she has so many wonderful pieces that are already in her collection. I mean, those early Poiret pieces, but also for me, I really would love to see more early Lanvin, like pre-World War I. Those are exceptionally rare and a time that she really exhibited that she was one of these, you know, forward-thinking couturiers, so. Just Poiret and Lanvin, that's all. Just Poiret and Lanvin, <laughs> you know, anything. <laughs> Well, that does it for us this week, Dressed listeners. May you consider the pleasure of finding the perfect piece to add to your wardrobe next time you get dressed. We will, of course, be posting pictures of some of the treasures in Sandy's collections on our Instagram this week. You can find us there at dressed underscore podcast, where you can also DM us if you'd like to send us a message and say hi. And of course, you can always email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram,
0: Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. More Dressed on Tuesday. (music) Dressed, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio,
2: visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.